Hello and welcome back to Nature's Wonders. I'm your host Will and today we're joined with Shelby and she will be talking about her efforts in the coral and ocean restoration. This podcast is sponsored by Corals Anonymous and Aquachar. Thank you for listening and stay tuned till the end. Hi Shelby, how are you doing? Doing well, how about yourself? I'm doing good. So can you tell me a little bit about your company that you started and what you guys are doing with it? Certainly. So the Ocean Rescue Alliance is a marine conservation and restoration nonprofit organization that implements innovative techniques to scale marine restoration. We predominantly focus in South Florida on natural reef restoration with applied restoration strategies with oyster, mangrove, and coral restoration. We also create complex artificial reefs that provide biodiverse fish habitat while also enabling these applied restoration techniques to be applied so we can outplant corals or oysters on these artificial structures. And we really integrate art to connect the public. So we'll incorporate different eco art initiatives like our Thousand Mermaids project, where we'll sculpt people as mermaids to bring awareness to marine conservation. But we also do other art initiatives. So these art initiatives create unique dive sites, but more importantly, help connect and engage the community And we also have citizen science and education programs that really engage the community further, where people can come and monitor our reefs with us and really help with the different scientific assessments and have different learning uh, techniques to really apply to the full community. That's cool. So I'd love to hear more about your artificial structures that you guys make. So are they just, is it concrete or what are these made out of? Yeah, so the artificial reefs are actually made out of a pH-neutral concrete mix. Our reef builder, Chris O'Hare, with Reef Cells, has been building artificial reefs for over 30 years now, and he's a material science expert. So we use different organic minerals like calcium carbonate, which is the very skeletal framework of corals, and also incorporate basalt fibers and have that pH neutrality of the mix. So it's a lot more environmentally friendly And we're looking at these different material designs to also help enhance natural recruitment to our reef structures. So our ideal goal is to also have natural corals come and recruit to the structures, but also have the ability to outplant corals or oysters on the structures themselves. So is it like you're making an artificial uh, shipwreck kind of, but more environmentally friendly? In a sense, um, we really are are much different than any other artificial reef company out there. We design artificial reefs that more closely mimic natural reef structure. So we create micro and macro habitat with different shelves and interstitial spaces, really for the value of creating biodiverse habitat space, because we really want to support different fish species and life stages. Most artificial reefs are inherently, just as you mentioned, ships, limestone boulders or construction pilings of what I like to call the the trash of land. And that inherently has a, an issue because that attracts larger fish species. And those smaller species really have nowhere to seek refuge from predation. So the really big value that we add is creating that complexity because unfortunately, as reefs are dying, um, most things we do in, in life are reactive, even when it comes to medicine um, and throughout the environment, certainly that stands true. And we need to start being proactive and preventative. So we can't just wait for our reefs to die and then wonder, where are these fish going to live? Where do they go? Otherwise, we would be losing thousands of fish species that not only our communities rely, rely on, but they also help balance ecosystems. So our goal as an organization is to get out as much structure as we can. And one of those, our mission is to save our oceans one reef at a time. So we really integrate that complexity to help supplement fish species as well as enhance uh, reef restoration technologies. 
if you were to describe what your artificial reefs look like, how would you do that? So I would describe it as if you're looking at just the geologic complexity of a natural reef, we have over 35 different designs. So each one of them have a little bit of a different purpose. So on our, our baseline module, which we call our low profile module that has shelves, I would describe that as looking more at to a, a fridging reef or simply a different patch reef structures where you'll see these condenses of different material that have shelves. If you've dove a natural reef where you'll see a lot of different interstitial spaces, that's typically what we'll target are these smaller units. But we also have larger reef structures called our wave reduction modules, which have a strategically different purpose than the biological complexity. These ones actually are, are quite large. They're much different than our typical artificial reefs. They're about 20 feet by 10 feet by 8 feet tall. And those are to help reduce wave attenuation and help protect against coastal erosion. So we're really looking to build that coastal infrastructure that can help buffer storm surges and also hopefully mitigate the need for beach renourishment. If you've ever, uh, if you're familiar with beach renourishment, that's where sands dredged offshore. Oftentimes it can destroy marine habitat and that's brought back onshore just to maintain the beaches for tourism and the economy. And that's really just a band-aid approach to the perpetuating problem because a storm comes and wipes that sand right back out into the ocean. And oftentimes that sand can actually smother reefs or other structure that's lying there. So we really need to start, start, stop using quick fixes um, for some of these environmental issues and start investing into coastal infrastructure. And some of the uniqueness that we do with, uh, with the Ocean Rescue Alliance is incorporating that art as more of that economic incentive to facilitate creating these sites. So now we can do these tailored eco art projects that have immense biological impact, but now we can actually get them funded without having to go through tax revenue where we can work with coastal developers, hotels, cities and counties, and different stakeholder groups to create unique dive sites that serve for multiple different biological functions. I know that's that's a lot to get into, but um, our goal is to really holistically address ecosystem problems and integrate different socioeconomic impacts to actually get these restoration projects started and continuing to grow. So how long have you guys been in business? So the project actually started with the 1,000 Mermaids Artificial Reef Project, which I got involved in 2019. The organization's been around for about almost five years now and founded the Ocean Rescue Alliance about two years ago. So we really founded Ocean Rescue Alliance to further expand on all the other restoration techniques that we're doing, as well as expanding to other art initiatives. Uh, as I mentioned, the A Thousand Mermaids Artificial Reef Project is one of our eco art projects where we'll sculpt people as mermaids to bring awareness to marine conservation. But we can do so much more with that art piece. Actually, one of the projects I'm most looking forward to is one we're doing in Mexico, which will be a Mayan-themed artificial reef, where we're actually working with a Mayan native to cultivate that art direction. And we'll be doing a serpent deity called the Kluklan. So the reef will actually be in the shape of a snake and incorporate all those Mayan features of that deity. So we really get this opportunity to create an impactful site that connects and engages Mayan culture and the community while also doing applied coral restoration. We're going to be able to go out with the community and outplant coral on that structure, provides fish habitat, as well as helping create another sustainable form of revenue in, in terms of jobs where people can create ecotourism opportunities, as well as cultivating corals for nurseries. And that's really where we're trying to take that holistic goal to develop these different eco art projects uh, to expand all over the world, hopefully.
Mm-hmm. And then, so you talked about putting coral on the, each structure. Are you taking this coral just in small fragments, like maricultured coral? Or are you doing more aquacultured coral on land? Yeah, so it's a variety of different techniques. What we do, we don't have our own coral nurseries. We, as an organization within the Alliance, our goal is to strategically partner with different organizations to enhance marine restoration. So we partner with different coral restoration practitioners. For example, in Florida, we're partnered with the Florida Aquarium, Coral Restoration Foundation, Moat Marine Laboratories, Rescue Reef with the University of Miami, Nova Southeastern, pretty much all of the restoration groups throughout South Florida. And what we do is apply our direct technologies like our Coral Locks, which is a threaded frag plug receiver. And that enables us to simply screw in coral fragments rather than individually gluing down corals. So if you're familiar a little bit with typical coral restoration, most restoration practitioners will grow fragments and cut up fragments from colonies to outplant on natural reefs once they get to a specific size. And typically that's done by individually gluing or epoxying down coral species. Now this can take a lot of time and effort and resources. And one thing that we've developed is an ability to be able to outplant coral more efficiently by growing them on these receivers and simply screwing them in to different structure types. So we do both natural and artificial reef restoration, where on natural reefs, we have smaller structures that have these little receivers that the coral locks can screw into. And we place those out on the reef. And now we can outplant hundreds of corals at a time versus the traditional methods. Mm -hmm. Do you have a specific pattern that you're screwing the coral in? Or is it just kind of how the structure is and you kind of just work with your structure? So it's actually really simplistic. It's almost like a, a normal screw, which normally wasn't used in restoration, but it's an easy uh, industrial kind of capability where now we're able to use this simple thread and incorporate it into different base structures. So as I mentioned, for natural reef restoration, we have these smaller bases. There'll be different shapes like domes or flower petals that are tailored to each specific coral species. So each one's a little bit different, but they all have that same embedded thread. So we're able to screw in all the coral fragments and we work with those groups like the Coral Restoration Foundation where they'll grow the, the corals on those frag plugs until they're ready to be outplanted. And then for, for our artificial reefs, we actually have those coral locks already embedded into the structure and we put placeholders in. And in the, so once we submerge the reef, it'll be ready to receive the corals whenever they're ready to be outplanted on the reef structure itself. Mm-hmm. So how are you guys assembling it you said you're dropping it in the ocean are you just kind of like taking it on a boat and dropping it in or are you assembling it underwater yeah so, so that's a great question so we build everything on land and our reef builder has a fifty-five thousand square foot facility reef cells is located in boynton beach florida so we actually will work with different molds so for example for art we can actually take any image or person and 3d scan them into a reef mold and then we'll cast that mold and specifically for the biological habitat, that's also built on land with different molds and we'll cast the concrete. And once that's cured and, and uh, ready to go, we'll transport those to a staging location at a port. And then those will be loaded onto a barge. And that barge then transports out to the site and each artificial reef is dropped down with a crane through a pre precision deployment uh, down to the ocean floor. So they're all uh, assisted down with this crane and we can always go in after the fact and move them, relocate them with lift bags if necessary. But we typically do, don't have to do that. Mm -hmm. So how long does this whole process take from designing all the way to putting it in the ocean? 
So it actually can go pretty quickly in terms of the construction and through fabrication. It really just depends on the schedule. Our reef builder also uh, has, has another business. So we typically can build about 30 reef modules within a month. And the deployment's really contingent. So in Florida, we have to have waves that are below two feet in order for the barge to go out. So typically, we'll deploy between May and July, so the summer months, uh, but everything can be variable. The deployment itself happens in one day, depending on the quantity of reef modules. We can get out about 100 reefs, reef modules out within about six to eight hours. So that's typically like a full day uh, of work on the barge. Uh, that's a lot. That's a lot more than I thought you would. Yeah. So how are you guys sustainably growing this coral so that you can put it back in the ocean? Yeah. So we work with the restoration groups like CRF, uh, Moat, and University of Miami, and they essentially have different techniques for really scaling um, marine restoration. They'll take mother colonies that they'll grow and cut fragments off of. They use different genotypes for each species. Um, a little bit differently, Florida Aquarium actually does sexual reproduction, which is great. Um, one thing I always like to talk on, we need multiple strategies for restoration. And one of the inherent problems that people may not be as aware of with coral fragmenting is because it is the same colony, they're the same genetic clone. A lot of those fragments, if you took 100 fra fragments from one colony, and let's say that one colony was susceptible to a specific disease, um, they're goes all of your outplants if that's impacted from that disease. So the really good benefit of doing sexual reproduction and coupling that with coral restoration is you get that genetic diversity. So just like you and I have different immunities, it's really bringing in that added value of having different stress and resiliency tolerance for different diseases and um, environmental impacts. So we work with a few different groups. And so sustainably, we work with groups that use different techniques for restoration. So holistically, we're getting a little bit more resilient coral species out on the reefs. We're doing different techniques to outplant them and then really monitoring that efficiency and continually going with what works the best. Mm -hmm. So we talked previously when I met you at Aquashella about the sexual reproduction of the corals, and you gave an interesting statistic about how long it takes for them to get mature enough to reproduce. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so... It can vary depending on the species. So with the Florida Aquarium, they typically will sexually spawn the corals, uh, typically in the summer months, and then they'll have those grow out in their laboratories. They become a larvae and settle out. And typically, they're doing different experiments to see when's the best time to outplant those coral recruits. Is it three months after, after they settle, six months, a year? all the way up to two years. So typically, uh, a lot of corals that get outplanted fragment-wise will be at the minimum about an inch to three inches, depending on the species. And so you can imagine if you sexually reproduce a little juvenile coral, for it to get to that size would take several years. So right now, they're still going through a lot of assessments as to what's the most effective. And of course, if you're sexually reproducing corals and those little larval recruits, it's going to take a very long time for them to become sexually reproductive. Um, one of the strategies that I mentioned that we're using with the coral lock bases is taking different fragments because some corals can be size uh, dependent for reproduction. We're taking these structures and putting out the same genotype so they can fuse together over that structure, creating a larger, more reproductive coral. So now we can get a base coral, like for example, brain coral, where we can fill a full module and then now allow them to fuse and be a larger structure than what it typically would take for one fragment to get to that size. 
if that if that makes any sense. So mm-hmm. um, everything's a little different. There's not a direct answer for like this larval recruit will be sexually reproductive in five years. But once they once you're actually doing sexual reproduction, it will take a very long time for that little larvae to become sexually reproductive. So what corals are you guys putting on each structure? And is it species specific for each one? Or are you doing a whole mix? Yeah, great question. So for natural reef restoration, we work with those restoration practitioners. They typically focus on different species that are endemic in the Florida Keys. So ones that are impacted from disease, like pillar coral, acropocervicornis, staghorn, elk horn, things like that, orbicella fabulata, uh, mountainous star coral. And those are typically the ones that we're focusing on for natural reef restoration. Now for artificial reefs, it's a, it's a whole different scenario where we're not using nursery cultivated corals for artificial reefs yet, just because of permitting and policy. The only corals to be put on artificial structure are rescued and relocated corals. And so by that, uh, we're actually looking to use corals that are getting removed or relocated from mitigation projects, for example, like the Osborne Tire Reef, which was an artificial reef that was sunk in the 80s with thousands of tires, actually has corals growing on them, but they're looking to remove those tires. And we're hopefully taking those corals off of those tires and relocating them to our structures. Another example, the Port Everglades expansion, where they're expanding the port and removing corals that might be impacted from the sedimentation those corals will be relocated, and those are called corals of opportunity, which are the types that we will use on our artificial reefs, at least until the policies lift a little bit more. Um, I really do see a lot of favor eventually shifting towards artificial structures that are more natural reef mimicking because we have this excellent opportunity to now create structures in areas that maybe corals might not be as impacted from disease. They might be in more favorable conditions. We could create nurseries in new areas. Uh, but there's a lot of policy that goes around that. So we can't just start moving corals from the southernmost keys up to West Palm Beach. Um, there's a lot of regulations that go into play just from a, a safety precaution that we're not going to be intermixing species. So the protocols are, are there for a reason. And you know, we're, we're working to, to follow with, with science and use science to inform as what's the best practice. So that's, that's a little differentiation where most of the public wouldn't be aware of, okay, where, why these corals are from here. And most people are like, well, why can't we get corals from the Great Barrier Reef and bring them here or from the Caribbean that might be more stress resilient? And the main reason for that is um, if you're familiar with the lionfish story for Florida, we have probably one of the, the, the state that has the most invasive species, maybe besides California. And uh, the lionfish has become a really invasive problem throughout the Florida Keys, and they really have no natural predation. So they'll just gulp up any kind of uh, fish that they can get, and it's causing a really severe impact on different fishery standpoints. So just how that kind of introduction caused so much chaos. um, In the ocean, we have a lot less control if we release something that we have some unknown factors. So there's a lot more strict regulations versus what we can do on land. And that's the same thing that applies to corals, why we're very specific on what we can relocate. Where are you putting these reefs? Are they far out from land or are they pretty close to the beach? So that's that's variable as well. Right now we work directly with the counties and cities. So the county actually owns the water rights, at least within Florida, where we'll work with them directly for open permitted sites. And if we want to open a permit, we'll work directly with them to open a new site. Right now, our artificial reefs are in about 45 feet of depth. Uh, one of them is off West Palm Beach, Florida, and we're getting ready for another one in Dania Beach. 
And both of those are easy open water dives, but we do intend to bring some nearshore snorkel reefs because that also has an ability to really impact the community. We know not everybody's divers, not everyone can get out to the sites. So now we'll have snorkelable opportunities, but we're just looking on, on fundraising for that. We actually have hundreds of permits open throughout South, South Florida, not only South Florida, but all the way through the West Coast of Florida that we could deploy reefs. It's just a matter of funding that construction. Mm -hmm. So are these closer structures, would they ever impact like boats or like fisheries? So it would depend. Um, it depends on the location. Of course, there's a lot of assessments that go into the permits. So when we have an open permitting zone, they're all assessed for impacts. They can't be near natural reef structure or seagrass. Um, and of course, there would be any kind of regulatory considerations put into place if a reef was there. So we probably would put up marker buoys and make sure that's notated so boater traffic would be aware of what's in that area. Uh, for the snorkel reef specifically, that's where we would work with the county for those regulations. Typically, in that kind of area, boaters wouldn't be able to just kind of jet through there. But each site's a little bit different. Everywhere has uh, different topographies and different considerations to take into place from a regulatory aspect. So that's that's a little bit variable. You talked about your Thousand Mermaid project. So how have you gotten any mermaids in the water right now? Or what's the progress looking like for that? Yeah, so uh, right now our 1,000 Mermaids project, the goal is to get to 1,000 over time, and that will likely hopefully be um, not just throughout Florida, but all over the world. So we have some interest on bringing the project over to Mexico as well, um, as well as even to California, which is interesting. We also do public land art displays just to bring awareness to the project. But at our current initial 1,000 Mermaids site, we have about 35 mermaid sculptures out there right now. So we're still growing. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, we predominantly focus on that biological habitat. So we typically will only put out a few sculptures per site and making sure that we're trying to provide the most holistic um, ecosystem and habitat that we can. So of our about 85 modules, we only have 35 mermaids at the 1000 Mermaid site right now. And so are the towns buying these or... Who's actually buying the structures? Yeah, so it's been a little bit different. So we've gotten some stuff that's been grant funded. Our reef builder actually donated our very first reef. And Dania Beach was the first city to support our project. So they're actually funding the construction of this next artificial reef. But we certainly can have individuals contribute. We actually have one an individual called the American Mermaid, Emily Gugliano, who was our very first mermaid to get sculpted, and she helped fund her own module construction. So really anyone can contribute. If you want to make your own reef, become a mermaid or not become a mermaid, you can also create your own reef structure, even a plaque. We just started doing celebratory and memorial plaques where every individual can celebrate a loved one or a birthday or anniversary and have coral outplanted right around their plaque. And then each plaque actually contributes to fish habitat. It has a shelf that the fish are able to reside under, and it even has microhabitat embedded within it as well. So lots of ways to engage. Um, and that's really one of the great opportunities is we really strive as an organization to enable people to have a direct impact. Uh, there's a lot of awareness built around the problems in our marine ecosystems but not enough ability to engage. So we really want to break that down to where every single individual can make an impact, whether that's adopting a coral, creating your own reef structure, or simply even sharing some of our messaging. Um, there's a lot of ways to support. So you talked about your Aztec. Was it the Aztec and the Mayans? Mayan. Mm -hmm. And then was that who was that for? Was that just the Mexican government or 
What was that one for? Yeah, so so we actually proposed the idea with, um, there's a few hotels throughout Tulum, and we're looking at working with either Nomade as well as a few other ones. And of course, the Mexican government's also tied into play. Um, so we haven't decided on the specific full art direction, but um, that wasn't dictated from the Mexican government. But we certainly want to enable that. We really just felt the value because of the location of this hotel. It's actually right adjacent to a Mayan ruin site. So really thought this might be a great opportunity to bring awareness to Mayan culture. It's really relative and cultural to the area and create way more immense impact than doing randomized art pieces. So we really encourage any kind of stakeholder that we get engaged with to get creative. And that's, that's the fun part is you can open the floor to even the community to decide what they want to be there and, and let them really dictate how creative they want to be. Mm-hmm. And who's your designer for all your projects? Or is that just the specific person that's doing the project? So our reef builder will essentially present our ideas and work directly with him to, to make the design. Because technology is so advanced now, we're able to use that 3D scanning to take any image or person and create it into a reef mold. So we do look into a lot of the logistics in terms of you can't just do any type of art and, and crazy just because of the hydrodynamic activity. We're obviously doing things that are more making sure that it's safe for the marine environments um, and making sure that they won't break, that they're stable. We do stability test analyses with different universities, like the University of Miami has a sustained wave tank where we'll put modules in and run wave simulations to test storm surges, test 50-year storm events, make sure that they're stable, not going to move. So safety and science is a priority. So we implement all these little factors into that art direction, but we really leave people up to the creativity to design something. And then we work with our engineers and our designer to figure out what's actually feasible for construction. I probably should have asked you this at the beginning, but how did you get involved with all of this? Yeah. So I'm a marine biologist. I'm finishing my PhD with the University of Florida And I predominantly focus on different applied restoration. My background, I've worked with scallop, oyster, mangrove restoration, as well as predominantly corals. So I I have a strong passion for coral restoration. I grew up in Daytona Beach, Florida, around the ocean all my life. And just in my short lifetime, I've seen the direct impacts in the Florida Keys, where you can even see full coral colonies that have been growing for hundreds of years be gone in three days. And so it's really shocking and just the fact that a lot of these ecosystems don't really have as much of a precedence for their protection and they're often voiceless. I really was inspired and and passionate about conserving our ecosystems. And as a scientist, I know how hard it is to get people to care and communicate science to the public. And so when I initially got involved with the A Thousand Mermaids project, I fell in love with the art utilization to bring awareness and was like, we really have something here that we could fully expand to make immense impact and communicate that science and get people to care about it. Because art's been a universal language for years that connects and engages with people in different ways. And so came into this organization more from guiding and dictating more of the scientific components of how we integrate structure that more benefits biological functions, as well as habitat and applied restoration. And then uh, the initial founders, which was an artist and also Evan Snow, who's on on my board of the Ocean Rescue Alliance, Um, they really had that artistic uh, drive and direction. And so we came together and I'm a firm believer of collaboration and using that interdisciplinary approach to address problems. 
Um, oftentimes, even within science fields, you don't see people collaborating as much beyond their disciplines. And that is so needed because I, I also believe that we can really solve a lot of these problems plaguing not only our marine environments, but throughout the world, throughout different environments uh, now, right? We can, right now we're exploring into outer space, getting samples from Mars. We can figure out how to sustainably create energy from the ocean. And we've only explored 4% of the ocean. So it's really just connecting our resources and engaging groups from different disciplines, I think is the most efficient thing to effectively move forward in the future. So how can the everyday person get involved with what you're doing? So as I mentioned earlier, there's lots of ways to engage. We also have a lot of volunteer opportunities. If people want to directly support, they can adopt a coral, create their own reef and their own legacy that helps support marine ecosystems. And of course, sharing sharing some of our messaging. Uh, there's different ways to support online. We also fundraise for different projects that we have ongoing. For example, um, the Dania Beach Project has a few other events that are tied around it. And we're also looking at launching a lot of different educational platforms. In August, we'll be launching a virtual and augmented reality that will enable to enable users to learn about marine restoration from their computer. And this will be an immersive experience where you can dive our sites from your computer, outplant coral. And we're trying to looking at look at new learning techniques to teach about marine conservation immersively for those that don't live by the water or don't have access to the water. Yeah. So stay tuned, stay tuned for that. I mean, there's, there's a lot, you can visit our website at the oceanrescuealliance.org to figure out ways to get involved, but there's ample amount to get involved with. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your passion in business. And I'm going to look forward to seeing where you guys go with your thousand mermaids and other projects. So thank you for coming on today. Yeah. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Will. have a wonderful rest of your day. You too. Thank you. Thank you so much, Shelby, for coming on today and sharing about ORA and the Thousand Mermaids Project. And I hope everybody learned a lot. Stay tuned till the next episode. Thank you.
Thank mm-hmm. you.